Yo, yo, yo. Welcome to episode 14 of the Creative Writing Podcast. I hope you're all doing well today. We have a technologically advanced show lined up for you today. We're not going to have any outline segments. We're just going to kind of cruise through this uh, episode. How's that sound to y'all? Oh, yeah. We're going to have a little bit of news from Honey Buns. That's for sure. She was feeling better this week. All right. Let's get into this uh, episode. Let's cut out this uh, crummy music. Get straight into things this morning, this afternoon, tonight, whenever it is that you're listening to this like to say thanks to Tony Don for stopping by and playing this little tune for us, though. <laughs> and then, of course, I threw some crappy Apple loops over it. Thanks anyway, Tony Don. All right. First things first, before I delve into the technical aspects that we have lined up for you in this segment, I'm sorry, in this episode, there's a couple things I want to cover that happened this week. Uh, one of them was Old Blue, the creator of the show. His name's not really blue. It's his color more so than anything. He kind of went off over at the uh, Cafe Racer slash ADV Cafe uh, Facebook page after reading something on their website about um, hip, not hipsters, but I don't know. I think being fashionable, fashionable gentleman or something like that. He, He sent me the link and talked to me about it. Let me just tell you a little bit about old blue. He's he's older than me. He's an old school dude. And here's the thing. When he was growing up and riding motorcycles and stuff, I don't know. It was, it was a way different time. You know, times have changed. And guys are becoming way more fashion conscious. And I don't even think an older guy would be comfortable with the term metrosexual. Definitely not dandy. And I know the post over at the um, Cafe Racer page calling Wild Bill Hickok a dandy really really just raised old old blues hackles up. And uh, I don't know, it was a whole different scene. And to make a long, super ramble story a little, little shorter, he's not used to uh, people worrying about fashion and people worrying about what they look like. Even, even bikes. Like, dude, the bike you rolled out of the showroom, you threw some knobbies on it if it didn't already come with knobbies, and you went out and rode it, okay? Like there, most of the stuff was utilitarian and you only change stuff to make it work better. You didn't change it to look all fancy and fancy pants. And that's like the dirt side of things, you know, and that's still the case with serious dirt riders, serious flat trackers and whatnot. So when he sees all these guys coming in and like, I don't know, I think it just rubs in the wrong way to see a lot of, a lot of people coming in with like paying more attention to their freaking, their mustache and their scarf than like motorcycles. So I don't know. He he got a little bit fired up about it. My rebuttal to him was, hey, man, listen, uh, I meant to mention this on last week's show. I had listened to something with Talking Motorcycles with Barry Boone. And actually, Barry Boone, I think you should call that show Talking About Motorcycles because it kind of sounds like, hey, it's me, Crazy Barry Boone, and I'm here with some talking motorcycles, you know, talking motorcycles with Barry Boone. I don't know. That's just, just my opinion. But Barry Boone had mentioned that 
if it wasn't for some of these people, like, you know, the motorcycle industry in general has gone through a tough time recently. And not I'm not talking just sales, just the industry. I'm talking about the whole aspects of lifestyle and everything. People are going out of business. Teams are quit racing. Uh, people that were, uh, was this was their livelihood are now, you know, walking away. And, and only the super hardcore people that have uh, been in it long enough to weather this sort of thing are able to survive. A lot of us are trying to make a side hustle, and that's no, that's not a problem. That's how a lot of people started out, and Blue didn't have a problem with that. But it's just all the people like making stuff on Etsy and selling like beads and kind of stuff. I think he feels like is kind of useless. It's just people decorations, and it's not stuff he could use. So that's why he's kind of mad about it. And I don't know. I told him that listen, you got people coming up that are right now. Um, artists and stuff that, you know, the whole reason we called this creative writing is because more and more people that started writing weren't motorcyclists to begin with, you know, and they come into this from a creative perspective and bikes are getting more creative. And that's what, what I liked about it. So I said, come on, man, you know, you got to think of it from, from that whole point of view too. And Barry Boone, getting back to him on his show made a good point is that, uh, right now, the hipsters are bringing the fun stuff back right now. The hipsters are making stuff cool again for people to get back into motorcycling. So although Blue felt threatened by this, I get, you know, it's almost like an immigrant coming into your country and taking your job, whatnot, all, you know, that whole argument. I think that's what he feels with, you know, hipsters coming in and taking over the motorcycle identity. Cause now when you think of hipsters, you, I mean, a motorcyclist, you either think of like, well, he thinks of either hipsters and like people that are more preoccupied with growing their beards than working on their bikes on the weekends. Or he thinks of those guys that are like stunting it up. And we just watched some footage the other day of Martin Luther King. This had to be in Florida because everybody was like on quads and no helmets and stuff. And uh, so they were cruising on Martin Luther King uh, Jr. holiday, just making a huge mess of the streets and being irresponsible. And that's like all he sees on the internet now is that stuff. People being a hooligan, people not promoting this lifestyle or the sport in the way that he's used to seeing it being promoted and, and, and uh, practiced. So I think that's what, what rubbed him the wrong way. So, uh, I love the, uh, cafe racer podcast. Uh, those guys are do a really cool job of, um, reviewing gear and stuff and, you know, talking, doing cool stuff like the ride up the divide that they're working on right now and all that. So I don't know. He, uh, he just read that and I don't even think they, those guys aren't hipsters. Anyway, apologies to those guys. If, if that rubbed you the wrong way, I don't think it did. I think I saw that crash had responded uh, kind of favoring a debate or something like that. So I, I think it was just, you know, mission accomplished crash. It piqued some, you know, interest in people's opinions of it, whatnot. So yeah, not to belabor this, but another thing that Barry Boone said that was really awesome was something that I have been, I've wanted to talk about for a while and I just keep adding to this list of stuff that I want to talk about. So, I mean, it's growing longer and longer and longer and, um, getting further and further away, but actually becoming more relevant in a certain way is the idea of money and motorcycling. And that's kind of, kind of segues back to what I was talking with about blue. You know, the money is not there anymore. 
And the whole reason that uh, he was, Barry Boone was talking about how hipsters are bringing it back and making it cool again. Uh, he also referenced back in the camel days, you know, when we used to have like Winston Cup and NASCAR and a lot of Marlboro sponsorships through Formula One and racing and Lucky Strike. I mean, there was a lot of money back in the cigarette days. You got to figure cigarettes were like cell phones. Uh, everybody used them. Everybody smoked them. Could you imagine... I mean, I think that's why cell phones now are like taking over uh, racing series when they want to. That's the problem is that I don't think enough of them are. And we're relying on people like Monster Energy and Red Bull, people that make energy drinks. And they're kind of like doing a brand. I mean, they have to make a brand thing because like most people after a while go, hey, these things aren't good for us. They quit buying the energy drinks, but at least they sponsored Red Bull or Monster enough or bought enough swag now for the thing. You know what I mean? It takes it takes a lot of money to put stuff on, to promote stuff and to keep stuff relevant and active and then actually pay people to do it. I mean, you see these superstars out there risking life and limb, hanging it out on the track, you know, jumping freaking 80 feet in the air. If you go to any, any supercross or motocross or anything like that, those guys, the pros are actually not racing. And I think, Oh, I think Elena Myers is not racing this year, which is such a bummer because she was like one of the girls, her and Shalina Moreta. I loved watching what they had going on. And, and also um, Melissa Paris and, you know, I was bummed seeing people like that drop off, especially since they're like in the minority being a girl and whatnot. I mean, even a ton of guys are, are not having rides this year either. So, I mean, it, it just, it's just a bummer to see even when guys are having trouble and the main guys are having trouble, think on down the line what that means to the other people. So, uh, you know, Barry Boone was kind of happy that People are making it cool again, and hipsters are bringing it back. And hell, if if people like hipsters, and then people start liking bikes, and it gets bikes back to where it was, it doesn't really matter. You know, we're all motorcyclists, and and we're the, they're the ones keeping it alive. And that made me think of the Ducati Scrambler. Um, if Ducati hadn't made something that really resonated, and maybe it's Ducati marketing that really started this whole thing, because the Triumph Scrambler's been around forever, yet nobody seemed to like clue in on that thing very much. A few of my friends that were like into the vintage and cafe scene had them, but I mean, who bef- until Ducati came out with theirs, who could remember the triumph, you know? So it's just really weird. I've seen a lot of triumph trackers now. Everybody, all the uh, cool kids are turning triumphs into street trackers and sort of scramblers. But, you know, until Ducati came out with theirs, it was just like not on the radar. So the hipsters are making, like, that's the only affordable Ducati now, pretty much. Unless, you know, Ducati has always been sort of like a Lamborghini of motorcycles where, you know, they're pretty pricey and... They're not easy to get into if you just want to get out on one. You know, if you want to race one, it's a it's an investment. You know, it's a big investment. So here comes a scrambler, something that you can go around on the street. And I wouldn't recommend taking it off road, but that's what people do. You know, with it. So, and then they came out with the Scrambler sixty two, which is even more affordable. You know what I mean? So, I I, I see Barry Boone's point, and this is something I want to talk about in the future when I flesh it out a little bit more and like you know actually detail it but is uh wages because it's something that was said last year on pit pass moto you know that's a radio show syndicated radio show that talks to racers and people in the industry and it's something that keeps coming up it's a recurring theme that keeps coming up since you know the past couple years when things haven't 
really gone back to where people thought they would is money. Where's the money coming from that you're doing your sport with? How are you engaging with this lifestyle, with this industry to uh, support it? And how are you being supported as a professional in it? So yeah, it's really interesting. And uh, all of this kind of started from from Blue going over there and hacking on them and the just wanted to make sure that I addressed it all here and tell you that we're going to look at that in a future episode. Another quick thing I wanted to mention was this year I want to do a solstice slam. And that's just what I'm calling it because people love alliteration. And I'm just going to call it that because in about five weeks, I, you know, I'm not sure when the... I'm not going to look up the spring solstice and the winter solstice and see when they're coming. But uh, I just want to say that I would like to, in five weeks' time, that would be episode 20, around five weeks, because if if I keep putting these out on a weekly basis, uh, by episode 20, this is 14, so you got 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. Yeah, so I guess, not counting this one, there's there's five more going to be. Because by episode 20, I want to do this. For the next four to five weeks, I want you to do like a poetry slam, (laughs) not literally poetry, but I'd like episode 20 to be like a listener episode. So anybody out there, whether you are like a service rider, whether you are a garage builder, whether you're just getting into motorcycling, whether you haven't even done it yet, but you want to, I'd like you to record something Whatever, however you want to do it on your cell phone, on your computer, via whatever, you know, MP3, however you're going to record it. I don't care. Just get it on some sort of audio format. Mail it to us at creativewritingpodcast at gmail.com and or private message us on your Facebook on Facebook. You know, Facebook, if you need to, and we can get to you and tell you how to record, you can use like Google Hangouts to record and rip the audio out MP4 style. You can do all sorts of cool stuff. Most phones, you can record a memo and send it. So, yeah, I want you guys to record something at least five minutes, no more than like 10 minutes or 15 minutes, depending on how many we get. You know, we can fill the whole show. And here's my thing. Whatever the balance of the show is, I can edit it down for content if you think it's too long or anything like that. Or, you know, you can flesh it out if you need help. Private message us. Private message me. You know, don't don't raise hackles on old blue anymore. Um, but anyway, I'll, I'll respond and and we'll get it we'll get it hammered out because episode twenty I want to be like the the poetry slam where everybody it's like an open mic basically for listeners and I think that'd be really cool. And there's five weeks to do it. So if you don't have time this week. You know, maybe start next week. Maybe record like a couple minutes at a time. And by the end of the week, before you know it, you got like 20 minutes and you have to edit it down. So, you know, anyway, so I think that'd be really cool for episode 20. Now, here's what I'm going to do. If I don't get any submissions or if I just get like one or two, episode 20, I'm just going to play a kazoo solo for the whole hour or the balance of whatever I don't get material for. So... You guys are going to be the reason that's a shitty episode if I don't get any material. All the listeners out there, I don't care, even if it's in a different language, you send me something talking about, you know, relevant to motorcycles, relevant to you, relevant to being creative, whatever it is, and send it here, or else we're going to have an hour of kazoo solo. 
and I don't know anybody in the world that would want to hear an hour of kazoo solo. Even people that are like in all kazoo orchestras probably are sick of hearing kazoos all the time and do not want to hear a whole hour of a kazoo solo. But, you know, I figure it's it waste less gas than doing a chainsaw solo like Jackal that, you know, when they, I think they still are around doing chainsaw solos in their music. So, all right. Well, we're 20 minutes in. See, you can just blab like that 20 minutes later. And here we go. We haven't even, we haven't even delved into the show yet. So let's just jump off here. And, uh, remember, I'm going to bring this up at the end of the show again. I want, I want episode 20 to be a slam fest. Okay. Open mic to any listener of the show, all four of you that are out there, uh, especially the one of you that's out there in Mount Pleasant, Iowa. Last episode at around 50-minute mark of episode 13, I made a bad joke about motorcyclists in Iowa, and there's one listener in Mount Pleasant, Mount Pleasant area. My sorry list should have included you, and this week I'm apologizing to you. Please email us, email the show, creativewritingpodcast at gmail.com, all one long run-on word. Uh, I want to talk to you personally and apologize to you in person. All right, let's get into the show. All right, first things first here. I'm going to whip out some notes, a little bit of technical information. First thing I wanted to talk to you about was chain sizes. Well, do you ever, when you buy a chain and you're looking online or on the box or whatever, wherever you're looking at there's usually two numbers and they're both three digits usually unless you got a really long extended swing arm Chris Singsheim um, so we're going to break down those numbers real fast and it's usually like pitch and length is what it is really pitch and link length so the first number is the pitch and what is the pitch uh, well technically there's two parts to the to the pitch and there's three numbers there so how do they break that down well the the first part of the pitch the first of those three numbers will tell you uh how many eighths of an inch it is between the pins there's uh you know if you look at a chain if you've never looked at a chain uh and you're just starting out go check out your chain they're actually pretty technically um involved uh little pieces of kit that, that kind of take for granted you know what i mean there, there's a lot to a chain even though it looks fairly simple so the pitch is the length between the center pins that hold the links together and that's measured in eighths of an inch so the first number on your ch- the chain number is gonna it's usually four five or six and that's eighths of an inch so it's really simple. When I learned about it, everybody was always telling me it's five-eighths of an inch. And, but that's, it's not really. It's just the fact that when you see a five on the chain uh, as the first number, that is five-eighths of an inch. But four-eighths of an inch and six-eighths of an inch are also the, uh, usually the two other sizes. So getting, getting back to the, the, the first triplet of numbers, the first one is how many eighths of an inch it is between the, the pins. And four eighths obviously is half inch, five eighths is five eighths, and six eighths is three quarter. So if you take your sprocket, you know, you got a five, you know, your chain is a five whatever, 
you roll your sprocket on a four or a six, and you're going to see that it's off by like a sixteenth of an inch uh, or an eighth of an inch. You know what I mean? It's going to, depending on how what size your sprocket is, you will be able to visibly see that, that it doesn't match up if you lay it on a different size chain. Now, the other two numbers are also in eighths of an inch, but uh, let's say, for example, you have a a 520 chain and a 530 chain. Well, what's the difference? I want to replace my chain and, and uh, can I just get a 530 or, you know, should I stick with the 520? Well, that is also referring to the eighths of an inch, but we're going to say that the, the 520 is two eighths of an inch and the 525 is two and a half eighths of an inch. So, a 530 is three-eighths of an inch, so on and so forth. So when you're doing this math, um, you got a 520, so that's two-eighths. So the inner spacing from side to side now, looking at the width of your chain, is going to be two-eighths or a quarter inch. And like I said, a 530, that's three, the three-zero is three-eighths. So your chain is basically going to be... Uh, three-eighths wide. So you have two chains here that are five-eighths pitch, but they are completely different widths. Now, when you have like a, uh, let's say a 415, you know, four-eighths is your chain, so you got a half-inch half inch spacing pitch-wise between the center pins, and the 15 is 1.58s. So we, to convert that, you multiply uh, 1.5 times 2 is 3, and then sixteenths, you know, eight times two is sixteen. So if you have a uh, four fifteen or any chain size with a fifteen, it's going to have a um, a three sixteenths spacing width. So that's you know getting can go from very narrow to very wide uh, in just a couple numbers. So when you're ordering a new chain or if you're changing sprockets or something like that, make sure that you get the right pitch on not only the length, but the width. Uh, you know, I don't know how that will affect your front sprocket if you get a thicker back sprocket and you need to get a bigger chain, if it'll make a difference, you know, on your going around the, you know, the width of the front sprocket, you know, usually roughly matches the, the chain width. So I don't know if that's, uh, if that's dangerous not to get matching width um, front and rear sprockets. But usually when you buy it, you know, they ask you your specs right there when you're buying sprockets because that this is why. It's because you need to, it's very specific. It can be, you can have a really sloppy chain if you've got, uh, you're replacing like a 520 with a 530. It doesn't seem like a big difference, but that is, you know, the width of it is is what matters now. Another thing to keep in mind is that the pitch, the inner width pitch is um, in inner diameter because X-ring chains and O-ring chains have a different outer diameter. So they only measure the inside so that you know when you get a 520, it's always going to be uh, 20 inside and vice versa. You get, you go down, like you're going from a five. Uh, 30 to a 520 or a 515, your the chain isn't going to fit on your sprocket. So yeah, it really matters. The difference right there is um, what matters. And when I was learning about chains and I was learning about how to check to see if your chain, how much stretch it's got to see if you need to replace it. And they were saying to measure it on X amount of inches. Uh, 
I didn't understand, well, how do you know? Because chains are different lengths. How do you know how much it's stretched? Well, it doesn't matter the length of the chain. It matters uh, between those five-eighths is what you're measuring. So the length of the chain is the second part of that number. When you're, Like I said, when you're looking at a chain, there's usually two triplets of numbers. The first triplet is the pitch, uh, width, and, and length. And the second number is the number of links. And when I went down a couple teeth on my rear sprocket to get better gearing for the highway... I had to take that into consideration because there's only so much play in your axle adjustment that you're going to usually have to knock out a couple links. It's a good idea to have a chain breaker. Obviously, you need a chain breaker for some chains if you're if you're uh, replacing. And uh, it's always a good idea just to keep that thing handy if you're going up or down in, in sprocket size because you're going to want, you know, you need to make adjustments to your chain. And you're going to have to play with the adjustment to get it right. We'll cover adjustment next. But uh, let's cover measuring uh, chain stretch real fast since uh, that kind of segues right into this. So when I got my uh, Kawi, they, I was looking at the chain and it said to replace the chain if it's more than 2% of the original length. And so what they recommended was... Uh, if the link pulls more than like half the height of a sprocket tooth, it's probably worn out. So the chain I have on my Yamaha right now seems really loose after changing the gearing down for freeway. And when I pull it though, when I pull the chain, I, I take all the slack that I'm getting and I pull it all back toward the sprocket and I try to pull the sprocket off the, uh, the chain off the sprocket a little bit and it doesn't even barely move. So the, there's a lot of, it feels like the chain's loose. And when I actually measure it, it's like within the like max, it's, it's still within spec, but it's like at the maximum amount of free play that, that Yamaha recommends. And so the next thing I got to look at is my rear wheel alignment to get that chain right. Cause I've actually, uh, tightened it to within spec and it's like super tight and then going over bumps and stuff like that of course your swing arm when it extends down or compresses up that can adjust the actual chain length right there and it can actually stretch it or bind it so it's really dangerous uh, to be messing around with that stuff so make sure that you you check this and uh, take your chain uh, play or free play and, and make sure that you've you've at least got a little bit, but that you don't have too much. If you have way too much, it'll come off the sprocket, you know what I mean? And then it'll lock up your wheel. And I've seen uh, videos of people crashing because their chain uh, was like hanging way down. It was like hanging off the sprocket in the back, basically, because it was so saggy. And uh, yeah, when they're when they're swing arm modulated going up and down after a corner, it's just flipping the chain. The chain's throwing up now and it just bounced the chain right off the sprocket. So Kawi recommends 2%. And here's their procedure, and, and you can pretty much uh, do this with any chain. It says, you know, lay it down uh, on a ruler or, you know, some sort of scale if you got, you know, maybe you got a triangle or something like that. Measure the length of any 20 links from the center pin that you first select to the 21st pin. And if the uh, 20th link length is more, uh, well, this is specific for Kawasaki chains, it's a... Uh, 12.7 inches or 323 millimeters, then it's probably time to install a new chain because that's uh, been stretched more than 2%. So you just need to measure your chain and then, you know, 
whatever this leftover distance is, you know, you go by eighths. If if you know your chain pitch, you should know basically what the length of the chain should be between pitches by eighths. And if you got millimeters, it's so much easier to measure with millimeters. Um, I'm so glad I have mostly all my stuff is metric and, uh, it's, I just, I love being able to count in whole numbers. It's, it's really great. I mean, if you have like half a millimeter, then you're getting really small here. So usually valves and stuff like that are uh, that small of a tolerance. So yeah, anyways, it's, uh, tangent, but yeah, so you need to measure the chain length and you can, it's, it's super easy to be able to do that by millimeters or by inches because it doesn't matter how many links you've got in your chain and it doesn't really matter the pitch of your chain. They're all, it's all based on eighths. So you should be able to just lay it out on a flat ruler and measure it and see, you know, how many, if it's X amount of inches over, then yeah, you pretty much, it's stretched. So the other thing about chains and wheel alignment, and this all kind of segues into each other, is uh, how, how important it is if your chain is off, um, if your chain is, you know, you, you go to tighten your chain and it won't go into spec, your wheel, rear wheel might be misaligned. And I've read a lot of articles on how pros align their wheels, and it's not always with the marks on the actual wheel. Uh, or on the adjuster and on the swing arm. So a lot of times you have to string your bike, and that's what we'll talk about next. All right, well, stringing your motorcycle is a way I've seen people measure a little bit more accurately whether your wheels are tracking each other and whether or not your wheel is aligned, especially your rear wheel, is aligned within your swing arm. A lot of times the marks on your adjusting blocks aren't as accurate as you think they are and matching them up side to side doesn't always mean that your wheel is in alignment. Sometimes old bushings or bearings uh, or just sloppiness of the blocks and even, you know, poor manufacturing can cause the blocks, despite the fact they may have the same number of notches and everything on them, doesn't mean that they're always 100% accurate even to each other. So stringing is, I've seen two different techniques done, and I'll explain both of them here. The first one I've seen is using the front wheel, and what you do is you have to have a center stand, and if you don't have a center stand, you need to get some sort of wheel stand or chalk that'll hold your bike up vertically. To start out with the front tire method, you're going to want to take a, a pretty long length of rope, and right about you know, if you doubled it in half where the middle of it is, wrap that around the front edge of your front tire. So the very front edge of your tire, basically. And you want the rope to be as high as it can from the ground, but low enough that it's going to pass under your discs if you have disc brakes or under any bodywork or anything like that that's going to interrupt it from being in a straight line. Now, go to the rear of the bike and pull the lines tight. You'll want the ropes to touch the lips where the sidewall meets the tread, those little, basically the rim of your tire. You'll want the rope to touch that. And obviously, it's going to touch the frontmost part of your front tire. So you want it to barely touch the rear lip of the front tire. And then as it extends back, it shouldn't touch the front edge of the rear tire, but it should touch the back lip part edge of the tire. 
And basically, if it touches any part of the rear tire before it touches that back lip, your rear tire is obviously cocked crooked in the swing arm. Now, when you pull it tight, don't pull it in so far that it bends around the rear tire. Otherwise, you're not creating a straight line anymore. You're obviously bending, pulling it so tight that you're you're uh, forcing it to bend around the lip. And that's not showing you uh, completely accurately where there is, you know, what the, what the gaps are. So if you pull it straight back and it touches, the gap should be roughly the same. And if you, like I said, if your rear wheel is crooked, it's going to touch part of your rear wheel first before it gets back there to the back, or the gap is going to be bigger on one side than the other. And that's going to tell you that your, you know, your wheel isn't sitting straight in the swing arm. And once you get it aligned, you can use an awl or something and scratch new marks onto your blocks, your adjusting blocks, and you know, so that you know that's where they need to be to be aligned with itself perfectly. The other method that I've seen used for stringing is the exact same thing I just said, but in the opposite direction, where you wrap the rope around the rear tire and you do it at the furthest back edge of the rear tire, you know, wrap it around there in the center, pull it straight so that it it touches the lip and the rim where the sidewall meets the the, uh, tread of the rear tire, and then pull it forward just to where it's about to touch the lip of the front tire. And I mean, it's basically exactly the same thing, but in reverse. And sometimes you can see there, uh, uh, it'll... Point. Obviously, if you've got like, uh, you know, the gaps are even at the front, then it's probably aligned with itself. But if you have a gap that's way off on the front, you're probably going to see it more exaggerated using this method because you're actually pointing from the back tire instead of to it. So, I mean, this could really show you how much your tire is off by doing it that way. Another way I've heard people describe is using straight edges instead of string. And apparently back in the day, sometimes you'd go into a garage or a racing facility or something and, you know, they don't have uh, really long straight edges. So the mechanics would actually go up and grab a fluorescent bulb from the shop lighting. And those things can be like six or eight feet long. And so they would go grab a bulb, take it over, you know, prop the bike up on its stand, take it to the back wheel, press it up against the the back tire, you know, basically that rim, the lip that goes around where the sidewall meets the tread and do the same exact thing, run it forward toward the front. And with a straight edge, you can, you can see the gap. You don't have to really use your, your eyes to follow a string down. This is literally like having two laser pointers, but you know, let's call it wood or a light bulb or anything like that. And people I've, I've read of people that do this, they prefer doing this rather than using the notches on the adjusters to measure because this is so much more accurate that they actually have gone to a hardware store and they've bought really long straight edges for roofing, I think. Uh, Maybe they are, they could be like a long um, metal straight edge or a long, like one of those six foot levels. And uh, one of the, a gentleman that I actually had read online um, uses those the same way that the mechanics would use the fluorescent bulbs, and he just uh, bungee cords them together 
one on each side of the rear tire. And now you have them pointing straight forward. And it's so easy to see the gap at the front, whether it's pointing a certain direction, if it's tighter on the the right and it's, you know, you got a two or three inch gap on the left, obviously the wheel in the swing arm is cocked to the left and you can't always see it sighting down the chain. You know, I've measured my chain before and I've run a straight edge along the chain. I've run a straight edge along the sprocket, you know, to try and see basically doing this same exact thing. But instead of aligning the wheel to the front wheel, I was trying to use the chain to align it. And it's really hard. Uh, The chain, since you're right there next to it, doesn't always show how dramatic something can be out of whack. So obviously the further you can extend something, you know, the further that parallax view or whatever they call, you know, when you've got a radiating line and you're comparing it way out rather than at the source, it really does make a difference. It allows you to see, um, it can turn, you know, an inch at the front end can just be like, you know, a couple millimeters at the back end. So you would never be able to see it with the naked eye there at the back end. But when you put those straight edges along the tire, boy, you can really see it. So that's the two ways that I know to true your rear tire and make sure that it's tracking the front. There's a whole bunch of issues that can lead to if you aren't, you know, like I said, tire wear is one, chain wear is one. Um, The tracking and handling is certainly affected. So make sure that you've got that uh, remedied and taken care of. And don't always just count, you know, five clicks on one side equals five clicks on the other side good to go because a lot of times that's not very accurate at all all right well let's take a break from the technical stuff right now and we'll get back into it after this brief news break with honey buns take it away honey hi there i'm back Daytona Bike Week kicks off in roughly one week on March 4th. That means Sturgis of the South is going to be in full swing for anyone hoping to escape the last grasp of winter in favor of a little preview of spring. There will be 10 days of biker parties, semi-nude vendors, and activities for bikes and people alike. Alongside the debauchery, there will be tons of racing at world-famous Daytona International Speedway. There will be Supercross by Honda on the 5th, Amateur Supercross on the 6th and 7th, ATV Supercross on the 8th, the AMA Flat Track Season Opener on the 10th and 11th, and the 75th Annual Daytona 200 on the 12th. This is an event for everyone except hill climbers. Apparently, there are no hills in Florida. Also kicking off this week is the opening round of the World Superbike at Phillip Island. The Australian circuit is a stage for what is promising to a to be an eventful year of racing. I think it's safe to say that MotoGP will probably have the same three names hitting the podium over and over. Our interest will be World Superbike this year since there are at least Americans to cheer for in the series. A brief article on Cycle News revealed a shocking piece of information this week. Motorcycle USA is shutting its front doors. In a short missive on the company's Twitter page, Motorcycle USA announced that it would cease operations on Friday. The closure of the 20-year-old online publication is part of a restructuring plan by the parent company, Mag Retail Group. Motorcycle USA's road test editor, Adam Wahid, said, 
We've certainly had our fair share of highs and some lows just to keep us grounded, but we want to thank all of our loyal readers and fans across the globe. We were able to leave one hell of a skid mark over the last two decades and help set the bar and influence online motorcycle publishing. The publication will certainly be missed. Cycle News is operated by the same company as well as Four Wheel Dirt and Motorcycle Superstore. The Yamaha XSR 900 has been mentioned in several publications a few times in the last few weeks. A recent write-up on Yamaha's answer to the Ducati Scrambler revealed that the adjustments made to it have stabilized the ride and added to the spirited character of the bike. It is basically the FZ09 in slightly retro naked trim. Some slight adjustments have been made to the chassis, however, that fix the suspension modulation and corners and some lean angle issues that the FZ suffered from. It looks as though test riders are giving this baby a thumbs up. I wouldn't mind wrapping my thighs around the tank and wheeling this thing through some twisty back roads myself. In other triple news, Triumph Street Triple R has also been garnering some time in the limelight as of late. Its new design is the first since 2011, and all of the fire and angst from the original hooligan bike that started the factory street fighter craze over two decades ago has been resurrected. Triumph has accomplished this by revamping the triple instead of totally redoing it from scratch. Not to go into too much technical detail, it's pretty cool. Check it out. Speaking of Yamaha and Triumph, if you're looking to eliminate the ignition switch from your race or track day bike, check out Woodcraft's line of ignition switch eliminators. Removing your switch reduces weight from the front of your bike and allows steering dampers, lap timers, aftermarket instrumentation, and other chingaderas to be mounted in its place. The wiring kits are plug and play and do not require you to cut or splice your stock harness. Down the road, you can reinstall your switch with no problems. They offer kits for Aprilia, Ducati, Kawasaki, Yamaha, Triumph, Honda, Suzuki, and even the EBR 1190X. Check out woodcraft-cfm.com for more details and racing parts for your bike. Thanks, folks. That was another episode of the news by Honey Buns. I just wanted to mention a couple quick things in there. Daytona Bike Week is roughly 500,000 people, half a million people, which is basically, if you remember back to a few episodes ago, what we said the stats at Sturgis were like. That's why we're calling it Sturgis of the South. It really is, you know, a truly historical event. Also, news of Motorcycle USA shutting its doors truly is heartbreaking. And they are owned by the same company. They are the company that started Motorcycle Superstore, basically. You should read about them and and see how they split companies. Uh, You know, it started out as a blog and turned into a full-on motorcycle news publication. They created Motorcycle Superstore as a way to generate blog uh, revenue at first, and then it just blew up into an online retailer. And so it, it really is sad to see that 20 year, uh, veteran of the industry going out. And as far as world Superbike and MotoGP, it looks as though you're going to have to have a special sports package to be able to catch those races in the U S now. Thank you for 
eliminating all motorcycle coverage and you're probably going to do the same for American motorcycling. And then we wonder why racers can't get better wages and why people aren't making money on sponsorships because nobody is seeing this crap. Yet we have all these reality shows about families with dark haired girls in them and little pageant kids that are overweight and the real athletes and people that uh, are out there doing stuff, actual real stuff, can't, we can't get eyes on them because of stupid uh, television packages. All right, that's my two cents. Out. All right, getting back to the technical information and technical specs, why don't we go from alignment to uh, tire tread wear? If you are wondering whether your tires need to be replaced. I wanted to bring this up actually because I've seen a bajillion online tire sales and for bikes too, bicycles. Uh, you know, I'm still a, a two-wheel wonder and uh, still love anything two wheels. So uh, I noticed that a lot of motorcycle mags were hawking tires, a lot of online sites, and a lot of bicycle uh same sort of outlets we're we're hawking tires right now because the winter season's over and hey it's time time to update that rubber so if you're wondering if your tires need to be replaced and now is a good time to buy them let me tell you how to check to make sure that they're within spec well if you look on the sidewall of your tire molded right into there will be a little triangle with the letters twi next to it and that stands for treadwear indicator and where that little triangle is pointing up, you go and look into the treads of your uh, one of the sipes there, and you will see a little block. And if you can, if it's level with the tread of the tire, then it's time to get a new tire. And if you've still got plenty of space there, basically you flip a penny upside down. And if you can see the top of old Abe Lincoln's head, then it is time for new tires. Or if you've got a flat spot uh, down the center of your tires, it's time to get a new one. Then you're basically rocking on the edge of like an octagon or a hexagon rather than uh, a nice round smooth tire. Also, your tire has a birthday on it. Uh, I've found that on all of my tires when I check, it's right near the dot certification label and molded right into the sidewall there will be some numbers. Usually it's three or four. And the first number is going to be the week that the tire was manufactured. And the last two numbers are going to be the year. Uh, most manufacturers suggest replacing your tire within five years. So if the birthday is after that, or if you notice cracks from you know, you leave your bike outside in the sun or in inclement weather and it's going to get cracks. I've garaged my bikes and my tires have lasted well over five years. And when I do see any signs of cracks on the sidewall or anything, even if they're not five years old, they may just be a shitty tire. I go ahead and replace it. So I actually have a tire I should take a picture of. The birthday, it's still mounted on the bike too. The birthday is uh, 279. So what does that tell you? Yeah, this is the original tire. It's from the second year, so the January um, 7th through, what, 14th or something like that, uh, 1979. And it's still mounted and it still holds air and everything. Obviously, I've never driven on it, but it's just funny to have uh, something, <laughs> some actual vintage things still, you know, it's an old Metzler tire and it's pretty cool that uh, it still holds air, even though it looks like total shit. So 
another thing, this goes hand in hand with what I was talking about, about uh, aligning your wheels properly, is that you can have some flat spots or squaring, and you can have cupping or what some people call scalping, other people call scalloping, and it's just a, a more harsh form of cupping. It's a little bit deeper and sharper. This could be from suspension and normal cupping in cars is usually due to inflation problems. When your tire is underinflated, it's basically if you've ever had a car tire that has sat in the dirt or you know in the driveway, you'll notice that when you roll it backwards, there is a huge literally like a bowl where the tire has pushed itself up. And that's because as the weight of the tire pushes down, um, a tire isn't soft like cloth, it's rubber. So the the rubber that's getting pushed down, instead of billowing out like a sheet would, it has to go somewhere. So it just pushes back up and forms a cup. So that's why when you have poor inf- poorly inflated tires, you'll see cupping marks around your wheel and you might get a little bit of bounce uh, in your suspension as you're riding. And that's usually due to underinflation. And underinflated tires can actually cause heat problems because as you're driving, the air inflates when it gets hot. And so your tire might be a little bit low and it just might not look low because it's not, you know, all the way flat. But when you drive that extra space, that extra uh, footprint is creating friction. I mean, it's more surface contact with the road and that's going to heat up your tire. And then that's going to super expand the air inside and the temperatures can be overwhelming. And that's all you need is crazy amounts of heat getting into the carcass of your tire. That's just asking for it to blow out or asking for it to malfunction. So properly inflated tires aren't only nice to have for fuel efficiency and for proper suspension feel and rider feel and and, you know, you don't want to hit a bump with a poorly inflated tire. You're going to bend your rim. So it also ha- is good for tire life and keeping excess heat out of your tires. So, yeah, if you have scalloping on your tire or flat spots, you might want to check your suspension. And a, a couple things about your suspension is if your bike has ever taken a hit in the side, maybe the shock or the fork, you're not sure if it's bending or bent, I'm sorry, you know, what you can do is push it down. And if it binds anywhere or sticks anywhere, chances are, even if it looks straight, it's probably bent. And your sliders, as they go up and down, you know, they can, all it takes is a little bit of a bend there for them to stick. And that means that you're not going to get the proper rebound and you're not going to get the proper compression when you're going over bumps. That's going to cause problems. That's going to cause tire wear and handling issues. And you don't want to be going through a corner and have your suspension stick on you, not be able to compress and not be able to rebound. You're going to lose traction with the, with the uh, tire on the ground and basically... You're just asking for an accident to happen. Uh, Same thing with the rear wheel. A lot of time you can see shocks get bent, and especially like on old motocross bikes or dual-purpose bikes. Maybe you fell over, you hit a stump or something, and it's hard to see with the naked eye, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes your spring will be straight, but damn, your shock got hammered, and as it comes back it's the rod going in is literally you know quite bent and you can see it and that'll cause it to bind and that'll cause zero you know 
play, uh, well, not play, but it'll cause, you know, zero action of your swing arm. And now it's not compressing right. You're not, you know, and and it's definitely not rebounding right. So it can cause a stick or a hang up, which obviously is terrible for handling. So you always want to check that stuff. If you're seeing weird wear patterns on your tires, just press it a few times, uh, check it visually, roll it on a flat floor, anything to make sure that it's not bent and there's not a slight imperfection that you're not seeing that's going to cause a problem when you least expect it and when you least want it. There's a fucking kangaroo in the road! Oh, dude. All right, well, aside from kangaroos jumping in your path, there's something else I want to talk about before uh, to wrap up the show, and it is the motorcycle accident cause factors and identification of countermeasures, volume one, technical report, otherwise known as the Hurt Report. The reason it's called the Hurt Report is coincidentally because Dr. Hugh Harry Hurt Jr., a uh, USC professor was the one that officially started collecting data in 1976. The report was published in 1981. Uh, it's been called the Hurt Report ever since, and it is or was the most comprehensive report uh, ever put out f- to study motorcycling and injuries and accidents. And it has remained that way for quite a long time, and it still is probably the most comprehensive crash-related and injury-related report that we have, and this back in a time when bikes have none of the safety stuff that we have now. So I think it's really about time we do a new report. To introduce you to the Hurt Report, I'd like to paraphrase an accident and wrongful death attorney website that I saw, and some of their concerns are the same concerns that we all have as a writing society that within the last 30 years it is the most comprehensive report that's ever been done and most of the findings are still valid today however motorcycle engineering has certainly changed there are vehicles on the road that weren't really prevalent back when this study was conducted such as SUVs and I'm not going to punch this into the ground again, but CITS is coming. And so there's a lot of technology that's changing the way that vehicles on the roads interact, period. So it's, it's about time that we have a new report or a new study. There have been studies done across the globe, most of them a fair, fairly long time ago. I was looking on the MSF. Um, actually, it was the uh, NHTSA website under the MSF header, and they cited the Hurt, uh, Professor Hurt did his report in 81. In the UK, uh, there was a guy named Petter who did one in 1979. In Canada, the Newman report was from 1974. And Germany and other countries in Europe had the Alte report in 1998. It actually looks like Hurt, Petter, and Alte, or Oat, actually knew each other and got together during a NATO conference in 1979 to discuss safety measures. And while there's no doubt very invaluable information in all of those reports, the one thing that they have in common is that they can't be compared to each other because there was no uniform set of standards and no real defined uh, procedures that each one followed. The Hurt Report is pretty comprehensive, 
and there's quite a bit of information in it. So a lot of places that you'll visit if you look up Hurt Report have pulled out some main points and main factors. And I will link to an article that I found, a document that also has research done Uh, in 1990, I believe, by the International Motorcycle Safety Conference. There, like I said, there's a few things on the Hurt Report. So just to summarize a couple of the main ones, beginning with the first one that they mention is that approximately three-fourths of motorcycle accidents involved a collision with another vehicle that was usually in a car and obviously not another motorcycle. So riding in groups, uh, at least back then, not uh, very dangerous. And the next line after that says a quarter of these were single vehicle accidents involving the motorcycle colliding with the roadway or a fixed object in the environment. That could be hitting a pothole, uh, running over something in the road. You know, it doesn't always mean that you took a corner too fast and, and hit a curb or anything like that or hit a telephone pole, but I'm sure those were part of it too. So vehicle failure accounted for less than 3% of the accidents And when I looked down further, it said that weather was usually not a factor. It also goes on to state that violence against motorcycles and motorcycle violence against cars was usually not a factor. And it makes me wonder if the same sort of friction that exists today between a lot of motorcyclists and automobiles existed back then too, partially because of the biker identity that that was going on back in the late 70s and early 80s. And so I'm I'm not 100% sure, but it is interesting. We've all seen videos circulating nowadays of bikers acting like they own the country and can do just whatever they want. And I think as a result, we've seen more videos of cars taking justice into their own hands or behaving just as badly and purposely not letting motorcycles pass or purposely not letting motorcycles split lanes or even just being upset that they got called out for being on their cell phone and they take it out against the biker. So it's interesting to note that the Hurt Report took factors like that into consideration. The Hurt Report did note that drivers between the ages of 16 and 24 were significantly overrepresented in accidents, and between the ages of 30 and 50, they were underrepresented. And I think that that probably uh, would still be the case today if you could still get your license at 16 here in California, at least. And I think that males, younger males, and maybe even later than the 24-year-old range now are probably overrepresented in motorcycle accidents. It even took into consideration what your trade was, and craftsmen, laborers, and students comprised most of the motorcycle riders and those involved in the accidents, where professionals, people in sales, and highly skilled craftsmen were underrepresented Another thing to note is that riders that had previous recent traffic citations or accidents were also overrepresented in the accident data, meaning that they didn't learn from their previous incident. 92% were self-taught or learned from a friend, and almost half of the fatal accidents showed alcohol involvement. It's funny that they note that the motorcycle modifications such as those associated with a semi-chopper or cafe racer are definitely overrepresented overrepresented in accidents. One of these times I might quit saying overrepresented. 
The Hurt Report did a great job of categorizing and classifying where the injury to the body was and how severe and what type it was. And if you really want to see why we probably have safety standards that you're taught of over the ankle boots and gloves and all that, that's you could probably glean some of that information from the Hurt Report. One of the biggest takeaways from the Hurt Report and one of the first things that was mentioned on one of the very first sites I saw, the statement that wearing a motorcycle helmet greatly reduces head injury. So I thought that's pretty funny. Kind of one of those no shit Sherlock moments. Item 49 says the increased coverage of the full face coverage helmet increases protection and reduces face injuries. That's a big duh. There was another comprehensive study done, and it was done in 2010. And the only reason that it, I don't think it's quite as comprehensive as the Hurt Report, is that it was a significantly smaller amount of case studies. And it was done in a significantly smaller amount of time in a very small uh, geographical area. It was done all in Orange County, California. What they did do is they used the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development methodology, which is a comprehensive approach used by European countries. So they did what the Hurt Report didn't do in using a set standard where that you could actually compare against some of the other other countries that do crash testing and crash analysis and and data gathering. That report was called the Motorcycle Crashes and Outcomes Study. Motorcycle Crash Causes and Outcomes Pilot Study. And I will put a link to that in the show notes so you can read it. Uh, It's pretty detailed. Uh, Another uh, report that is uh, the first complete European in-depth study is the Motorcycle Accidents In-Depth Study, or MAIDS Report. While MAIDS was primarily a European report, a very in-depth European report, I might add, there was another one local to uh, the UK or Britain in in general, and that was also called an in-depth study of motorcycle accidents. And I was looking up that, and it says that you can reproduce it and publish it uh, free of charge in any format or medium. Uh, So I may just link to that. Actually, I... I recently found a page that has all of these links on it. So what I'm going to do is I will link to that single page and it'll take you to the maids report. It'll take you to the British in-depth study report and it'll take you to the hurt report, the two vehicle motorcycle crash report, the motorcycle crash causes an outcome pilot study and the there's a Michigan motorcycle safety action plan that uh, used, I believe it was 2007 data, and they were doing an action plan from 2009 to 12. So there are a lot of current reports that uh, I would I would call them pretty in depth, but they just don't have the scope and range that the Hurt Report did. However, as we're seeing with some of these newer ones, that they are taking into account European standards and formatting, we can all get on page as a global uh, entity, sort of, and see, you know, maybe contrast and compare what's happening. I think I mentioned earlier that I wish the AMA would stop arguing for helmet use, since some people don't really want to use helmets, and get on board with lane splitting. 
And that brings me to the last thing I want to cover, which is the lane splitting report that was put out by the California Highway Patrol in conjunction with the UC Berkeley. And they found that lane splitting is actually safer if you do it smartly. Now, in a lot of these other crash reports that I'm referencing, they say that in a, a large chunk, they, it varies depending on which report you, you read, obviously because of the uh, geographic area, but a large percentage of motorcycle crashes is accounted for by the motorcycle being the striking vehicle. And I think even this lane splitting study done by the CHP recently is last year says that I think it was about a sixth of the lane splitting motorcycles were the rear ending other vehicles basically. And it, you know, it's not always your fault. A car, when you're lane splitting and a car decides, Hey, they're going to change lanes all of a sudden, uh, there's not really much you can do, but there was in the hurt report, uh, in these other, a little bit more modern reports, especially that one done in Orange County, there was a quite a large number of motorcycles that were rear-ending the back of cars. So that means they're just going too fast uh, and maybe even splitting lanes. I, it happens all the time where people will split lanes, lanes at like 80 miles an hour. That's, that's the downside of lane splitting out here is that people do it a lot and it kind of makes people think twice about making it legal in other states because of things like that. So you're really kind of doing yourself in if you're doing it at like 80 or 90 miles an hour. And also because cars change lanes and, you know, at freeway speeds that are pretty high, you you don't want to take that chance of a car changing a lane, you know what I mean, when you're trying to split. So that I not to be uh, holier than thou, but I... I do lane split pretty responsibly when traffic is lower than 40 miles an hour. Since this new uh, study has come out from the CHP, they're recommending 50 miles an hour. So that I will take into consideration. It said this lane splitting study cited that lane splitting motorcycles were injured much less frequently during their collisions. So even if you are in a collision, as long as you're between two cars, you are less likely to suffer head injury. And I believe 19% versus 29%. So you're 10% less likely to suffer torso injury and extremity injury. And I mean, it's every, all sorts of injury were less severe being in between the vehicles. And that's probably because if you're doing it responsibly, you're not going that much faster. And if a car does change a lane in front of you or like inches over and you find yourself getting, you know, put down, you're not going that fast. I'm going to quote directly from this report. The proportion of motorcyclists who lane split generally decreased as traffic speed increased. Four-fifths of the surveyed motorcyclists stated that they split lanes when riding on freeways, and of these riders, 38% reported that they only split lanes in stopped or stop-and-go traffic. An additional 27% reported lane splitting when traffic is moving 20 miles per hour less, and 15% reported lane splitting when traffic was moving at 30 miles per hour less. Increasingly smaller numbers of riders reported lane splitting when the traffic speed increased. And we have people 7%, 2%, and 3% split traffic 
if it was moving 40 miles an hour, 50 miles an hour, and 60 miles an hour, respectively. So um, I do see a lot of people, when traffic is standstill splitting, I also see a lot of people splitting when it's doing at least 60. I mean, I guess I need to... I would have to count numbers and make sure I was pretty damn accurate. But I mean, it feels like, you know, when you see it happening all the time, I, I, it can feel like you're seeing it more than you really are. So, I mean, I guess I should, I'm not going to bullshit about this one. So in 2014, the AMA issued a cautiously worded endorsement for lane splitting, which said that, quote, given the ongoing success of lane splitting in California, and the recent enthusiasm for lane splitting or filtering in other states. The AMA endorses these practices and will assist groups and individuals working to bring legal lane splitting to their states, end quote. So what I would do is I would join your local AMA, or at least uh, petition them, and petition your local legislators that you want lane splitting since it's been shown to be safe and beneficial The Motorcycle Industry Council also uh, condones lane splitting and has endorsed it as well, especially based on this study. I have to say that lane splitting is not only good for filtering because as many motorcycles, I mean, this may just be an urban, uh, you know, developed area thing where there's a lot of traffic, but as many motorcycles as can filter through the lanes, cars have that much more space and less traffic. So we're actually helping traffic. But also, I have to say that as a safety mechanism, it's very, very valuable also. And as witnessed by all these other studies where they can cite where the injury was less when you were between cars. Um, how can I say between? Like splitting between cars rather than in between cars when you get rear-ended and smashed into the back of another one. Uh, you are much likely less likely to get injured. And from an anecdotal point of view, I can't tell you how freaky it is to be sitting the first car in line at a stoplight or, uh, you know, if you were to be the last car you know, behind a line of cars and just constantly checking my rear view mirror to make sure no one's coming up behind me. It's freaky enough being the first guy at the light or at the stop sign. But if I was like, whenever I'm in a row at a stop sign, in particular on a one lane where you can't split, I am just paranoid. And I will get over to the side so that if a car does come, I can kind of haul ass up alongside the car that's in front of me. I don't want to get hit from from the back. So yeah, lane splitting, I definitely am down with. And I'm going to link the page where I found all these reports on. I was, I was, I've researched them individually online, and then I found this great page that has them all there. And any of the ones that it doesn't have, I will link also inside the show notes. Well, it's an hour and 10 minutes, and I said I didn't want to take too much of your time and I want to dial these back. So of course there's not going to be a a shitty movie review this time around. And of course we couldn't cover hardly any of the technical specs on your bike uh, or the technical side of motorcycling. So we may try to cover one or two in a segment each, especially as riding season's coming back online now. I might try to highlight something that's of value to you as a listener and really as a friend of the show. 
So hopefully by the time writing season comes around, and especially by the time episode 20 comes around, don't forget we're doing the Solstice Slam, where you become the host of the show, and you give your story. And hopefully by the time that comes around, we've got a, a lot more things covered. We, you know, we might cover something stupid as breaks, you know, how breaks work it, to me, all this stuff, all the technical stuff is super fascinating and you can geek out and nerd out on such a small level that it gets pretty crazy. So the whole reason I'm not going to go too into detail on these crash reports is because they are super detailed as far as like the protocols that they used, how, how, much each case uh, cost to report, you know, how much the investigators build out their time so you can see how much investigating, pardon me, each crash cost. I mean, it's, you can nerd out on that level. So let's, let, I'm not going to go there. I'll give the material to you and you go there. I'm just here to kind of present it to you and show you, hey, here it is. Check it out. This is what I know and what you could know too. So anyways, Here's a couple things coming up. I think I might have already scheduled this to go out as these things are already happening. So by the time you hear this, Motorcycle USA will have closed its doors. I think World Superbike will have already done round one or two. I'm not 100% sure. But also check out Vintage Motorcycle Racing Arma is having a Roebling Road uh, race this weekend in Bloomingdale, Georgia. And if you're not familiar with ARMA, it's the American Historic Racing Motorcycle Association. And they have the sights, sounds, smells, and camaraderie from the 1930s to the 1970s, which was the golden age of road racing. So check that out this weekend if you still have a chance to. All of you guys over uh, Phillip Island, I'm jealous. Go... um, Go World Superbike. Also, um, the 28th, the SoCal Cycle Swap Meet is happening. And that's going to be at Veterans Memorial Stadium in Long Beach on March 4th, which is surprisingly this coming Friday. Daytona Bike Week starts, and we talked about Daytona Bike Week and all of the stuff that's going to be happening. Bike Week is more than a week, I believe, but the racing is going to take place over... Honey Honey laid out the racing for you and gave you, gave you dates, so you do that shit. Listen to Honey. There's also an International Vintage Motorcycle Swap Meet, and it's a bike show also, and that's going to be at the Lake County Fairgrounds in Eustace, Florida on... The 4th to the 6th, so it's three days. Um, It says there's acres and acres of original and used accurate new replacement parts. So check that out. There's a fast lane swap meet on Friday at the Volusia County Fairgrounds in Dayland, Florida, or Deland. It's the 12th Annual Bike Week Motorcycle Swap Meet Extravaganza and Bike Show at the Volusia County Fairgrounds. So... They have the wall of death every hour. Um, they have a shovel sh- head show, a rat bike show, and a sidecar and trike show, old school shopper ch- and old school chopper show. But the old school shoppers, I mean, that shit takes the cake. It's so funny to watch. So, I mean, all this stuff coinciding with bike week sounds like a hell of a lot of fun. Uh, 
After the fast lane swap meet on Friday, Saturday, check out the Mortgage Solutions Financial Expo Center in Nevada Avenue, Colorado Springs, Colorado. So it's a hell of a drive from Daytona up to Colorado, but you know, you might as well do it. It says that it promises to be the best party of 2016, but I'm guessing that that's at the Mortgage Solutions Financial Expo Center because if you go to that place when it's not uh, a motorcycle show and swap meet, mortgage and financial solutions are not that big of partiers, let me tell you. Happening locally around the L.A. area this weekend on Saturday uh, from March 5th from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Pro Italia Motorcycles off the, uh, just off Highway 2, I believe in La Cunata, is having the first annual Pro Italia Scramble Meet. And you meet at the store, kickstands up at 10 and all bikes are welcome. The route is all paved city streets and some highway, uh, but I believe that they're going to be... Oh, yeah, right here. I believe it's like a little poker run. They're going to hit various checkpoints along the way, meet back at Pro Italia by 2 for a raffle drawing and some prizes. So, yeah, do that, man. Sounds like a lot of fun. Going up the 2 is, is a lot of fun. If you're in the Washington area, uh, the Spokane County Fair and Expo Center... Uh, from March 11th to the 13th, they're having the Inland Northwest Motorcycle Show, and I'm not 100% sure what time that starts on Friday, but it's going to be three days, uh, Spokane, Washington, beautiful, beautiful part of town. On Friday the 12th, oh my God, Honey mentioned it, the 75th running of the Daytona 200 International Speedway at 1801 West International Speedway Boulevard, Daytona Beach, Florida, baby. Uh, You got to go check this out. If I were down in Daytona, which I might be, I would go check it out. It is going to be awesome. Uh, The next weekend out, I'm going to add to this because this is a little bit early to to be announcing so many weeks out, but March 18th, 19th, and 20th, the Piston-Powered Autorama hits the International Expo Center, 1X Center Drive, Cleveland, Ohio. Cleveland Moto Podcast, are you guys going to be there? It's the 1X Piston-Powered Autorama featuring over a 1,000 vehicles filling more than a million square feet of space indoors. And it has to be indoors because I'm assuming, I didn't watch Punxsutawney Phil, but I assume that it's still going to be freezing balls up there. So this mega event will showcase custom cars, bikes, boats, aircraft, tractors, monster trucks, interactive displays, simulators, a swap meet, car clubs, and more. If it has a piston, oh well, well let me let me don't fuck up their saying their little saying is if a piston makes it go it's in the show check it out i think they're gonna have a soapbox derby and an indoor rally track so i'm not 100 sure what indoor rally is but dude that sounds like a lot of fun so go check that out on the 18th to the 20th march is upon us people march is upon us and if you can't make that Go to the O'Connor Fieldhouse in Caldwell, Idaho for the Idaho Vintage Motorcycle Club Swap Meet. And that's happening on the 19th and the 20th. Uh, The bikes have to be at least 20 years old to be in the Vintage Bike Show, which means an 86, right? No. Oh, no, a 96, right? A 96? Wow, that's not very vintage. But anyway, go check that out, Caldwell, Idaho, 
Idaho going off. We're going to have some guests from Idaho actually on the show very soon. So stay tuned for that. Feel free to email the show with your events. I don't know what's happening in Belgium. I don't even know, uh, you know, what's happening in Europe right now. Oh, I did find actually some uh, British. I should put that on. I did find a site with British bike stuff happening, and I should definitely put that on. I will. I'll put that on the next show. Thanks for reminding myself. All right. Well, I blabbed long enough. Um, I'm going to start my sorry list. We at the Creative Writing Podcast would like to say sorry to the Cafe Racer ADV Cafe Podcast. Sorry to Crash and Steve over there. Uh, I like their show. And everybody here does, apparently. Um, Just doesn't like what they have to say all the time. We'd like to apologize to Facebook. Sorry, dude. Uh, Talking Motorcycles with Barry Boone. We are sorry, Barry Boone. You are a great uh, voice of the sport and endorser. And we love you. And we love your talking motorcycles. (laughs) We are sorry to chains. We are sorry to links. We are sorry to O-rings and X-ring variants. We are sorry to Harry, Hugh Harry Hurt Jr., Whoever Petter's first name is and Alte or Oat, we are sorry to you. We are sorry to hipsters. We are sorry to the California Highway Patrol. We're sorry to the Maids Report. We're sorry to all reporting. We're sorry to that one listener in Mount Pleasant, Iowa. Is it the dude from Windblown? He's got a podcast. Check out that website just in case that's who's listening to us. Check out uh, the Windblown blog. Maybe we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. We are sorry to Chris Singsheim, who I mentioned. Uh, Sorry to Paul Smith, whose idea it was to investigate the Hurt Report. Paul, thank you so much for the great show idea. I don't know how in-depth you were expecting me to go. There is a hell of a lot here, though. And in order to cover all the technical specs of the chain and tire stuff that we talked earlier and still get to the hurt report baby there is no way to go deep diving on this one without making this an hour and a half show at least uh sorry to you listeners who are expecting a shitty movie review i will do one of those i will time it out so that we can still talk tech and still talk shitty movies sorry to honey buns who made her triumphant return to the newsstand this week and something funny that happened today. Good thing Honey wasn't around. And good thing Tony Don had already come by to record the music for this, this morning's show. My dog snatched a chicken bone out of my kid's hand. My kid was walking away from the table with some chicken. And the dog snatches it out of her hand. And my wife comes bolting out of the bathroom, pants down. Because she's afraid the dog is going to choke on the chicken bone. So, dude, I am just going to start walking around with a GoPro on me at all times, like a cop with a body cam. Like, this family hijinks in this house is just at, like, a level 12. So, all right. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed the show. Again, don't forget, episode 20, The Solstice Slam. If you don't want to hear a fucked up kazoo solo For the entirety of the show, you better submit some shit, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. Bye. So, 
What's your name, baby? I, you know, this report, I got to quit saying you know, you know. Sometimes you eat broccoli, and other times you eat cockley. Can you say your race or track day bike again? It's not track day bike, it's track day bike. It's like one word almost. Sorry. Switch from your race or track day bike. <laughs> Do I say it wrong? <laughs> you kind of said track day bike again. <laughs> What do you want me to say? Say it. Track day bike. Track day bike. <laughs> now say something else. <laughs> you just wanted- a recent write-up on Yamaha's answer. Sorry. You know, anything that uses a four it can vary with that. You know, that. Chingaderas. Yes. A ruler or a. Track day bike. Eights uh, is what? Three eights, yeah, three. <laughs> if we don't, uh, chingaderas. <laughs>